Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. John, you know how lots of people say they're passionate about stuff and we really disapprove of that. And I'm always saying to people, you know, stop being passionate about stuff. Just be good at stuff. You know, no one cares about your passion. They care about the result. (laughs) Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. No, I'm not wrong. Anyway, so yesterday we did a Twitter spaces, you and me, because we're kind of young Mm. and and modern and down with the kids, right? And I suddenly realized that I am passionate about pensions. I mean, who isn't? Let's be fair, who among us has not been passionate about pensions at one point? And I'll wait, everyone. Everyone. But that's because they don't know how fascinating they can be and how exciting it is to have actually done some proper work on this. Because, you know, you know, research, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. Having done some actual research into how the, the UK pension system works and how it works relative to other pension systems around the world. And we find that actually, relatively speaking, it's pretty good. And we talked about this rating system, the Mercer uh, pensions rating system that that looks at uh, pension systems around the world in terms of all their different parts as opposed to just the state pension. And we found that in terms of global ratings, the UK is really high up there, better, by the way, than Switzerland or Germany. That makes me feel kind of excited. As it should. I mean, I I think actually it it was a really good chat, actually, and it it was very interesting. Um, and I think that everyone should go out and listen to it. Someone's going to put the link in the show notes. Um, but just as a little added incentive, we talked about house prices the last time we did one of these Twitter spaces, and it ended up being one of the most listened to Twitter spaces that Bloomberg's ever done. So what we'd really love is if you lot could go out right now and listen to the pensions one and help us to beat our personal record. John and I are target-driven. We talk about our PBs all the time, don't we, John? Yeah, KPIs coming out of our ears. Absolutely. I mean, you know. <laughs> but listen, let's let's give them an incentive here. What was the most interesting thing for you that came out of that chat yesterday about pensions? What made you think, God, my retirement's going to be great, apart from me pointing out that you haven't got a defined pension, defined benefit <laughs> pension, and you don't work in the public sector, which is a bit of a downer. But what was the thing that really made you feel that, actually, this is not so bad? Well, I think the nice thing is that it's that idea that uh, we've finally it's not so much my own pension it's the sense that Britain was actually doing something right and right in uh, in a in quite a significant way you know it's actually the system's a lot better and it's also kind of backed by actual money as opposed to a promise to pay at some point in the future but the other thing actually that I thought was was interesting but also urgent was uh, we were on with Stuart Trow, who's a Bloomberg's pension columnist, and he pointed out that there's actually a really good deal on uh, buying in missing national insurance years at the moment. You need 35 of those, 
right? You yeah. need 35 of those to get a full state pension. And if you haven't got those, which you might not, if you've taken time off, you know, for parenting, caring, or just, you know, hanging around, going to yoga retreats, whatever, you may not have those full 35 years. And there's a, a deal on, a sale on at the pensions department, <laughs> right? Where you can, you can buy them back. Yeah, it's really good value. Mm. Um, you, get your money you, back you in three years. Yeah, no, it was really impressive. So, so yeah, actually, you really should listen to this, you know, even if it is just for that bit, although the rest of it is also excellent. Um, but, mm. you know, you, you could really make a difference to your personal finances in the long term if mm. you haven't got those contributions um, and you make them before April. Yeah, and you know what I was thinking afterwards, well, five minutes ago, actually, that <laughs> the auto-enrolment system, the way that the auto-enrolment system that we have in the UK, which, by the way, you get your money at 55, you don't get that anywhere else, um, the way that interplays with the state pension system, which is there as backup, etc. This intermingling of private and state financing that has worked so brilliantly to fully rescue the UK's pension system and make it one of the best and most resilient in the world. I'm thinking NHS. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good idea. Controversial. Mm, hate mail. Is good. Absolutely. Hate mail to the usual address, please. Um <laughs> Right, everyone, listen to that Twitter spaces. It's really interesting. There's a lot to say about pensions and I know you think it's boring and I know it's one of those things you just want to put out of your head. You know, please God let you never have to be old enough to, to retire and take a pension. But this is going to happen. You need to know about it. And John and I are passionate about pensions and that comes through in the Twitter spaces. Go listen, help us reach our targets because that matters to us as well. Thank you very much, John. Lovely to chat to you as usual. You too, man. Passionate about pensions. <laughs> Passionate about pensions. Let's make that our new strap line. <laughs> Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is my old friend and ex-colleague James Ferguson, founder of the Macro Strategy Partnership. He's got over 25 years of experience as a stockbroker, a sector analyst, and as a macro strategist. James and I, well, we kind of started our careers together as uh, stockbrokers over in Japan. Uh, so we've known each other a long time. We've had a lot of conversations in those years. James, hello. Thank you for joining us. Now, listen, James. One of the reasons I always want to have you on my podcast is because you tend to uh, look at things a slightly different way to other people, maybe a little bit contrarian, well, quite a lot contrarian, and very often you turn out to be absolutely right, and we like that. So this year, I'm looking at a piece you wrote recently, you are expecting this to be the year not of high inflation, not even maybe of inflation, but possibly the beginnings of deflation. Don't hear that often. In the old days, um, deflation was defined as a contraction in the nominal money supply. Now, on that basis, the US money supply has been uh, falling nominally, so not adjusted for inflation, just the headline figures have been falling since February of last year. So actually, from that point of view, we've, we've actually been in deflation since February. But the trouble is that we have what Milton Friedman called long and variable lags. Uh, and so I think it's going to be this year where um, the lags um, uh, play out and we, we end up with the uh, uh, something that looks, at least on the surface, quite deflationary. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's just define deflation for the purposes of this podcast and this audience as being a general fall in the price level as measured by, say, CPI. Can we do that rather than uh, a contraction in nominal money supply? That's why we didn't have deflation last year, or even though that's the textbook definition, but we will have it this year. Uh, I think. Okay, so what's driving it? Purely this contraction in money supply. The sort of absolutely sort of first mover 
is the base effects. Now, you may remember people talking about base effects when we had the inflation. The, the authorities, when the inflation started to crop up uh, in sort of early 2021, talked about how it was uh, still transitory and all that we were seeing were base effects, i.e. because inflation had dipped lower than trend in the sort of March, April, May period of 2020, then in the same March, April, May period of 2021, you were comparing the year-on-year change has been compared with something which is artificially depressed. So the base effect was making the inflation look higher, was their argument. And those of us who, who said, no, you've, you've got to watch money supply were saying, no, it's not just base effect, it's going to carry on going. Uh, and sure enough, it did. This time, we have exactly the same thing in reverse. So um, we had a much stronger than trend uh, prints, uh, basically May, certainly April, May, the peak was June, and then they were still above trend, but starting to fall back again in July and August. So therefore, we're likely to see base effects, but this time working in reverse. So this time the base is too high or higher than trend. So therefore, it's going to make the prints for each of those months um, look on a year-on-year basis lower than the underlying rate of inflation really is. And um, that effect will peak out in June and give us potentially as much as a sort of 2.5% lower than the underlying trend figure. So let's assume that there are roughly three equal size components of CPI. Um, there's goods, which is actually a bit smaller than an equal size, but goods if you include uh, energy uh, prices. Uh, then you've got services, which is about the same pretty much as wages. And then you've got shelter as the third component, which is basically um, house prices and a little bit of rent. If we assume that two thirds, i.e. services slash wages and shelter are both running at 6%, but because we finally unwound the um, supply blockages, then goods inflation can come back down to normal. And that, of course, in the near term means an overshoot to below, possibly below zero. But let's just say for the illustrative purposes, if goods are one third and they're zero and the other two components are 6%, then the underlying trend will be about 4, actually 4.2%. So um, if the underlying trend is 4%, but because these base effects, by June, we can have a, a figure that's 2.5% lower than whatever the trend is. You can see that even on that assumption, we, we're basically looking at maybe a, a figure of 1.5 for June, which will probably lead to much dancing in the streets uh, outside the Fed um, and everyone telling us that uh, inflation has been conquered um, because they're missing um, the base effects. So the number one thing is the base effects. But what makes that really interesting is that also, if you look at the huge amount of excess money that was printed in the COVID period, um, that led to a sort of bubble of, of what even the Fed now acknowledges is excess savings. And um, that was what has been driving the nominal bit of nominal GDP, uh, i.e. inflation. Um, but those two things cross over because the money supply has been on a sort of a very gentle downward trend and nor nominal GDP has been on a very sharp upward trend. Those two uh, cross over around about April or May. So suddenly in June, you're going to have two things. You're going to have a base effect that makes the print look artificially low, but you're also going to lose, assuming we don't find a sort of sudden surge in money. So you're also going to lose that, that bubble of excess savings. So we could suddenly be looking at something that really does look quite deflationary by, say, May, June, July of this year. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, but that sounds like good news. I mean, it sounds like great news. So suddenly we've gone from an environment when we're desperately worried about inflation, and most of the guests I have on at the moment say that they expect inflation to fall very sharply. And again, I'm talking CPI here, expect inflation to fall very sharply, but after that they expect it to not fall to, say, 2% and stay there, but to be very volatile. Uh, So that's what most people are expecting, relatively high, relatively volatile inflation. And if it's actually going to fall down to, you know, 1%, 2%, uh, and stay there for a bit. This seems like great news. Um, yes and no. So the first thing is that yes, that's great news because it's what the Fed was trying to do. Uh, I.e., they they they're the cause of the error. Uh, same with the Bank of England in this country. They printed the money because, according to their theory, lots of excess money can't possibly lead to inflation. I know. I mean, there isn't anyone else on the planet virtually who believes that, but they believe it. They're in charge, um, and so that's what caused the problem. But they don't believe it anymore, do they, uh, James? They don't believe it anymore. You, you, they learned they should something. have learned something. But don't forget, cognitive dissonance is likely to be the, the overriding condition because in order to learn that, they will have had to have learned that everything they'd learned at university was wrong. And, and that, so there's, there's, they're more likely to go, there you go, I told you it was transitory, <laughs> uh, rather than throw out every textbook they have and, and tear up their their PhDs and and go back to school, as it were, or or demand that someone starts, you know, digging out the old monetary uh, uh, or monetarist uh, tracts. So um, yes, that we have a slight problem. We don't know how much they believe that they got it wrong and 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 how what they ascribe that to. But but it does, will become very pertinent because say we get to the summer and say we now have a sort of deflationary environment with a bit of a, a, a wages overhang, because wages always lag. At that point, what does the Fed do? Now, historically, as soon as you start getting a recession, which you usually get because unemployment, which has just been bubbling around the bottom, suddenly goes quite sharply upwards, and the Fed usually cuts rates quite quickly. I mean, you know, within a couple of months, quickly. So what they've said they're going to do, but I don't believe i think you know events will overtake this but their plan at the moment is to hike rates to a certain point and then hold them based on the fact of these base effects they wouldn't be hiking rates any further but they seem to be still intent on that um, and they certainly wouldn't be holding them that, at that high level if the drop in uh, inflation comes with a, a recession which is actually what we're talking about Okay, tell us more about the recession, because I was saying to someone the other day, possibly even on this podcast, that when people talk about the recession now, they refer to the mild recession. And I said, maybe mild is this year's transitory. 
in the US, we've had seven uh, recessions, post-war recessions that um, you know we have the data for. So there were actually some ones immediately after the World War that it's quite hard to get the data for. So I'm, I'm talking about since like, say, 1950. So since 1950, you've had seven recessions. But the average decline in real earnings in the US, this is corporate earnings, not, not um, people, the average decline was um, 27% in real terms. So the idea that you can have a, you, you know, you, you could theoretically have a mild recession, but how would you have a mild recession? The point about inflation is that the Fed has let the cat out of the bag. The point about raising rates or tight, um, tighter monetary policy is in order to destroy demand to get rid of some of that inflation. What is the destruction of demand? Well, it's a recession. It's, it's, you know, it's just being disingenuous to pretend otherwise. When the Fed is tightening policy, it is tightening policy to create a recession. Because if it doesn't create a recession, it will be doing nothing to uh, rein back inflation. And how do you create an, a recession? Well, basically, you, you stop money supply growth in the sense that you, 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 know, you constrain bank lending. Now, bank lending is still running quite strongly at the moment, but obviously money supply growth is, is already negative. The, the thing about the recession is we have almost record high corporate profit margins, and corporate profit margins obviously rely on two things. They rely on firms being able to sell their goods to the household sector, and the household sector uh, is increasingly less able to buy their goods. They were able to buy them because they had this big chunk of excess savings from the money printing during covid but as, as I said, this is going to evaporate come April, May, whereupon households are going to need to get the extra money they need to buy all these corporate products from their earnings. But we know that real earnings are shrinking because although wages are rising at record high rates, they're rising less than prices are. So therefore, we have a cost of living crisis. It's not quite as severe in the US, but it's, it's driven on uh, by very similar things to, to our situation. So that by the time the excess savings are used up, which, as I said, best guess is maybe April, then uh, households in general don't have enough financial resources to keep buying ever more expensive goods. So they start buying less unless it gets discounted, which is squeezing corporate profit margins. And then they go back to their boss and they say, I need a bigger uh, pay rise this year. So when the corporates are looking at this, they see, oh, so now our costs with a leg um, our biggest cost is wages, and those those costs are going up. At the same time, we're having trouble pushing through the higher prices uh, of our goods. So um, it is often observed in the past that the first year of inflation is lovely. Everyone likes the first year of inflation. It's years two, three, and four that get really much more difficult. And if you basically have that situation, that margin squeeze situation and that um, declining corporate revenue situation occurring at the same time, that you prevent people borrowing, um, i.e. that you've got tight monetary policy, that is the usual preamble to to a recession. And this is going to be a horrible shock. Which usually knocks 27% off earnings. 27% off earnings, okay. In real terms. In real terms. It's going to be a horrible shock for people. But if inflation evaporates, then it'll knock it off in normal terms as well. Where's the bit where I get to interrupt you, for God's sake? Um, I saw the body language and I just <laughs> rolled straight over. <laughs> We can see each other, listeners, you see, and it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, now, corporate margins in the US have been expanding for a really long time. Everyone's gotten used to the idea that they expand, 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 hit record highs, et cetera. And there is a general assumption, I, which you can feel, that they're sort of stable, that this contraction, I think, will be a horrible shock to people. Historically, one of the most difficult things for corporates was pricing. You know, it's not like you're running a petrol forecourt where you can you can flick a switch and change the price every day. Each delivery, you know, 
has a different cost to you and you just change the price up on the big board for what people are going to have to um, pay to fill up their cars. But most companies can't do that. 70% of all products, according to the Atlanta Fed, are what we call sticky prices. And sticky prices on average don't change more often than about once every 12 months. So if you have a sticky price, then obviously pricing becomes very difficult. Now, in a low, stable, low inflation environment, pricing isn't really a big deal. But once you get into a you know more volatile inflationary environment, Pricing, if you get your price too high, you're going to pay the price in terms of lower sales. If you get your price too low, you're going to get lower margins. Very, very hard for everybody to get pricing right once we have uh, inflation. If margins are going to fall by, say, 20 27%, then that tells us presumably that the US equity market is still massively overvalued. The US equity market at this level probably doesn't have a valuation problem, but it does have an earnings problem. And that, that means that you get a slightly different, you get slightly different impacts on which bit of the market that might, might do well. For example, if you have a, a bit of an earnings problem, then the sorts of companies that might do well, uh, might be more value, uh, and staples, uh, than growth and discretionary. Um, whereas if you have a valuation problem, then you might actually find that, that, um, the stuff that does well is, is the opposite. So it's really more about where you might expect to see the pain or feel the pain. Yes. If the equity market is, is no longer bad value, that assumption is predicated entirely on the fact that it doesn't lose any money. If earnings go down, then obviously that immediately, the extent to which they go down, makes the market look worse value again. What can we buy in a situation like this? Well, it's a very unfashionable thing to say, but the first thing that, that this makes me think about, at least for now, is the fact that the, 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 the available quantity of dollars has been shrinking. Um, since February of last year, whereas the available quantity of uh, euros or sterling or, or almost all other um, currencies has been going up. If you think that the value of things should go up if the supply relatively shrinks, then the first thing to bear in mind is that after recent weakness, the dollar might be worth a look. Uh, the second thing to think about is, is um, that most of the valuation problems uh, and the um, profile of, of growth stocks compared to value stocks favors the US. So if we're now going to start favoring value over growth, and the reason we'd be favoring value over growth, by the way, is because of two things. One, value stocks tend to be cheaper, which means they tend to have a higher earnings yield. And the higher earnings yield is what you require to protect you against inflation. We know from the 80s, that uh, 70s and 80s, that um, the US stock market went into the period with a sort of 25 times PE multiple, and it came out with a, a six or seven times PE multiple. In other words, the destruction of value really occurred uh, with the destruction of PEs. And um, and so what you we, we're guessing you need to protect yourself is uh, start with a, a nice, decently low PE. And you only find that in the value sector. The other thing about the value sector is it tends to be boring, which is good because you can protect your margins better. And it also tends to pay a dividend yield. And dividends are basically the, 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 uh, the thing that, that, that again, you, uh, enables you to, uh, to hold your head above water during inflationary periods. I know I'm talking about, um, inflation evaporating in the near term, but, uh, if we get onto it later, I, I, I think it'll probably come roaring back in 2024. Let's hear about that right now, because that's the interesting bit. So you are fitting fitting into the inflation will be volatile camp, really. Yes. And so um, so the reason why I think it'll be volatile is, firstly, we'll, we'll get out of the basing effects as we go into the second half of this year. 
if we still have a declining uh, broad money supply in the US, uh, it, it won't really make much difference. We'll have 4%. Um, the underlying 4% in, uh, inflation rate will be revealed, will come back to be revealed because the base effects will have uh, dissipated. Um, but if we, if we got a sort of 4% uh, uh, inflation rate into the end of this year, and at the same time, money supply is still shrinking, most people will fairly uh, reasonably and accurately predict that um, this is a sort of a lagged effect and that inflation within another 12 months if we haven't got any money supply growth, we'll be kind of back at zero. And, and that is absolutely true. I mean, you know, if you want to uh, destroy inflation, um, then all you've got to do is, is hold money supply growth as close as you can to zero uh, and wait 12 to 24 months. We know this because it was done in the um, after the post-Second World War inflation. The problem is that the way, the reason why this works and the way it works is recession. And so what the Fed tends to do when it realizes it's been successful and it's created a recession is it then tends to panic and think, well, I, I've, I've gone too far. Let, let's take my foot off the, uh, off the throat of the economy. And so the normal response once we have a recession, and particularly the bit of the recession that the Fed will be concentrating on, is unemployment. But that is almost kind of how you would define what a recession is. Um, if unemployment suddenly starts to surge, and it usually doesn't surge, until the recession starts. And once the recession starts, it then tends to surge quite vertically. Um, that then leads to the Fed to panic in the opposite direction and start slashing rates and um, uh, presumably in our case, cancelling QT at the same time. And before you know it, we've got money supply growth uh, coming back up again. And it is worth bearing in mind that although we tend not to be, uh, we tend to be very simplistic about inflation, but technically inflation is more complicated than people think. And if your inflation is coming from overseas, and I know China's reopening this year, they're going to start demanding more oil, more copper, uh, more lithium, um, more, more of everything to get their hands on, and that'll tend to push the prices up. But that's not the same as inflation. You know, if the US has falling money supply, but everything it wants to import gets more expensive, that's not inflation. That's what economists call uh, a detrimental shift in the terms of trade. Um, this is what happened during the oil crisis. And the correct, uh, well, at least the textbook correct policy response to higher uh, costs from overseas is not to raise interest rates. That's the correct response to getting rid of inflation in your own economy caused by you growing your money supply. If the inflation has been caused by much more expensive imports of commodities and raw materials, then in order to prevent that having such a comprehensively negative impact in the economy, the correct policy response is to ease monetary policy cut rates and try and encourage money supply growth. So we could be looking at a Fed that is trying to do the exact opposite within as little as 12 months. And that could push inflation back up next year. The exact opposite of what it's doing now. All right. Well, this is miserable, James. Thank you for coming on. I'm really going well, I think. It's not miserable. It's dismal. This is economics. And the correct description of economics is the dismal science. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's move over to the UK. Um, and are things similarly dismal here? Um, well, we're, you know, there, there are sort of our inflation rate is now higher than the US, um, partly because everyone in Europe has um, paid the price of uh, reliance on, um, well, not so much of reliance on Putin's um, gas pipelines, but um, the complacency of not restocking uh, liquid natural gas in the summer ahead of the winter, which um, has amazingly not really been picked up much by the press, but is the main root cause of. of of this enormous cock-up 
that we've had. But anyway, um, that's now they're now being bailed out on that by a fairly mild winter and um, uh, and having paid exorbitant prices to uh, redirect uh, LNG from around the world towards Europe's um, storage tanks. So we we currently have sort of a much higher uh, level of um, headline inflation. Uh, and that's partly being supported by the fact that we're also growing money supply, whereas the US is actually shrinking money supply. Um, th- not that we're growing money supply particularly aggressively. So um, both Europe and the UK are kind of heading into a, a more gentle uh, recession scenario because, uh, frankly, the central banks aren't raising rates as fast as they are in the States or as high as they've raised rates in the States. And they aren't... Um, slowing money supply growth as much. So therefore, they've got kind of more of an inflationary overhang to work through. But I'm quite sure that if you give it enough time, um, we'll see a similar story playing out uh, in Europe as the one we're going to see first. In the, the US is almost always first. You know, it's it's first into the downturn. It's first out of the downturn. They tend to have much more, they have a history of much more aggressive policy responses, which are much harder in Europe because you've got all these, you know, people who are Different nations require different degrees of uh, of policy response, whereas in the US, they tend to add act at a federal level and, and so they can make things move. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me then ask you about a subject that I know you you certainly used to think about an awful lot and our listeners think about all the time, uh, which is house prices. Um, you know, John and I have been talking a lot about house prices and he has now announced that he believes that they'll fall at least 30% before all this is over. Um, and you used to be a, a terrible old bear on house prices. Would you agree with John on that in the UK? So, you know, we've, we've always known that house prices are pulled by two completely opposite forces. One is the multiple of uh, incomes. Uh, obviously, you can never expect to pay off your mortgage in the future if um, the price you pay for a house starts to become too high a multiple of your uh, income. On the other hand, um, the amount you're paying every month depends um, to an extraordinary extent on the interest rate. So therefore, if interest rates are super low, um, the income multiple of houses goes up uh, because the, uh, the monthly outgoings are, are relatively low. And we've obviously just come off a period where monthly outgoings have been 
lower than they've been for, if you believe, the Bank of England, 5,000 years. And um, uh, that obviously therefore means that house prices as a multiple of incomes, while still remaining affordable, have uh, gone up to the highest um, multiple that we've probably ever seen. So it seems quite reasonable, if unless you think um, interest rates are going back down to uh, to that 5,000-year low, and if they do, I would uh, argue that they won't stay there very long, then um, you know the chances are that the house prices have to reset in terms of multiples of incomes, and unless incomes are going to come down uh, in nominal terms, which I think is unlikely, uh, even if they don't do so brilliantly in real terms, then it, it's kind of a, a no-brainer to say that house prices in that mix have to uh, come down relative to incomes, and if incomes aren't rising hugely, that means house prices have to come down full stop. I th- you sound to me like you're in, in John's 30% camp. Well, I, uh, you know, the thing about economics is every time something starts moving towards a, a target, it itself has an effect, and that effect causes people to check. So, you know, yes, if we, if we had, let's say we had a, uh, you know, we had interest rates uh, at three percent and a mortgage rate uh, across the economy of five percent, and that was having enough damage on house prices. That alone could lead to the Bank of England cutting interest rates uh, in order to take the pressure off house prices potentially. So therefore, every single bit of the economy, you know, as the economists say, ceteris paribus, we hold everything equal, then something might do that. But of course, nothing is equal in economics. Every single thing that moves has an impact on every other thing, and, and they all reset after. It's more like sort of, you know, um, that parlor game where you go around musical chairs. We reset every time the music stops. Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, just before we go, um, it sounded to me like you were uh, bizarrely positive on the UK stock market, which people keep telling me is now investable again, having been uninvestable last year, suddenly it's investable for reasons that, you know, those of us who aren't privy to their precision of thought inside the institutional fund management market can't quite understand. But um, if it's now investable again, are are you considering that as as something reasonable for the retail investor to buy the UK market as a whole? Well, um, two things. One, it's quite interesting that the retail investor is supposed to be the thickest guy in the room, and the institutional investors are are the the smart money. But the reason why the institutional investors now think the UK is investable again is not because it was about to go up 25% compared to the US um, indices. It's because it has gone up 25% relative to the US indices. Um, So it turns out there aren't any smart guys in the room when it comes to finance. (laughs) Um, but the second point to make is, because it's quite relevant to the time when the US equity market really outperformed the US, which is basically from 1974 through until around about the mid-80s, um, that it outperformed for the same reason that it's kind of outperforming right now, which is it started from a low enough base, having previously been brutalized. The 1974 lows in the U- UK are just, you know, just unbelievable. Um, really, when looked at on a historical perspective, but of course, coming from a really low level and having, um, in this instance, got the jump on the US, the US was still trying to find a floor, which it didn't find until 1982, whereas the UK never went lower than the 1974 low. So the UK was basically it wasn't going up that much, but it was going it was going sideways when all around them were going down. So the best way to outperform is to uh, be cheap. You know, this is why we. The emphasis on, on buying things with low PEs, which uh, kind of lost all currency during the um, the low interest rate growth period, 
you know, when that comes back, that comes back into fashion when people will start looking for ways to protect themselves. And the reason why low PEs protect you is that that provides a floor that, um, you know, isn't necessarily there for other things. But it is worth bearing in mind, you know, you may not be necessarily making a lot of money. If you look at the US stock market over the, uh, the 70s and 80s, and there were two oil shops, exogenous oil shops. So this is a worse, very much a worst case scenario. It's worth bearing in mind that the index nominally went absolutely flat sideways, didn't do a damn thing. And adjusted for inflation, it fell 75%. So, you know, sometimes if you want to invest for the long run, you want to invest when interest rates are high, and I'll go about to embark on a, on a 20 or 30 year downtrend. It's very hard to not, not to look at our scenario after that 20, 30, even 40 year uh, interest rate downtrend and say that we're now going to have to redress the balance which might mean at least 10 years of generally rising interest rate uh, trends, which might mean that we've got to kind of, you know, pay back that idea that what you've got to do with equity investments uh, is is buy them and then, you know, check them every year to see how much they've gone up. That may not work so well in, in an environment where it hasn't historically worked well in an environment where interest rates go up and interest rates go up in an environment where inflation keeps coming back. And it's worth bearing in mind that inflation kept getting kept appearing to be defeated in the late 60s and early 70s uh, or through until the early 80s. But it, what happened was each time it came back stronger than ever. So what made it be defeated? Well, central banks hiking interest rates, triggering recessions, down it would come again. What made it then take off and go back higher than ever? Well, I think the fact that, you know, psychologically speaking, people no longer believed that inflation was dead. So wage hikes, wage demands were always just a little, you know, built in a buffer. You know, treasury investors demanded a higher yield, built in a, an inflation protection buffer. And I don't see that yet in inflation, uh, in treasury yields. I, I think the, the modern investor hasn't yet been brutalized enough by this experience to, um, to build in these buffers. But as people do build in these buffers, you know, everything just grinds to a, to a slow halt. So I, you know, I think one has to be thinking probably quite carefully about how to find value, how to not be greedy, how to protect principle, and possibly to, to diversify into things like, you know, that for a long, long time, I, I wasn't having any of it when you wanted to talk about gold. But actually, I think this is the sort of environment where um, gold, you know, which has done nothing for 10 years, um, but this is the sort of environment we're going into. Imagine if the, U, if the Fed cuts rates hard because we have a recession and starts to reignite money supply growth into, um, say, 2024, which is, you know, not that far after 2022, and everybody still remembers 2022 very well, and then they start seeing interest rates being cut at the Fed, they see money supply picking up again. What are all those people going to think will happen to inflation? And if they all think it's going to come back, then, you know, they're all going to go and buy gold. Yeah. Okay. I want to stop you there, James, because I've worked really, really hard over the last half hour to get you to say something positive about any asset class. And I've got there, right? You say something positive about, about gold. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for finally, after all these years, coming around to my way of thinking on gold. I appreciate it's taken me, what, 25 years, but we always get there in the end. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Merrin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, which I really hope you do, rate it, review it, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Merrin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi, additional editing by Blake Maples, and special thanks, of course, to James Ferguson, to Stuart Trow, and to John Stepek, as usual. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. It's very good, and you won't regret it. James, have you signed up yet for John's newsletter? Yes, yeah, absolutely. First thing I did this morning. And, and isn't it good? Yes, well, I knew you'd ask me about it, so I thought I'd better get in. Excellent. And you agree it's very good and everyone else should sign up. Yeah, John Stebeck is a very, very bright guy. There we go. Thank you very much. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.